just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You need fantasy baseball news? You need fantasy baseball notes? You've come to the right place. It's another Friday News and Notes edition, and it's next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 12th. It's show number 12 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday News and Notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch Player News Reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including infield playing time in San Francisco and Miami, a closer competition in Cincinnati, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including some interesting value plays like Manuel Margot and Ryan Yarbrough. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at Milwaukee outfielder Garrett Mitchell. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Seattle outfielder Taylor Trammell. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about pitching strategy in a points league draft. It is another Big Friday News and Notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? A little late arriving, but we got news, we got notes, and we got to talk some baseball. Before we get rolling, just a quick word of explanation why this podcast is so late in arriving on this Friday night. First, a terrible week at work. Very busy, a lot of stuff piling up. You know how it goes. And sometimes it just interferes with the real important stuff like baseball podcasting. And second, boy, a terrific night of curling at the Men's Canadian Championships in Calgary. One great match after another, one great shot after another. I couldn't tear myself away. I know it sounds weird on a baseball podcast to be talking about curling of all things, but boy, oh boy, when you're up here in Canada, it's a real big event and they sure put on a great show. We'll try to put on a great show in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading off, it's our National League News and analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in San Francisco, a longtime third baseman, Evan Longoria. People were looking at him maybe as a possible rebound candidate, but he's turned up with some foot issues. He's got that plantar fasciitis, which is always terrible. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today. What's going on in the San Francisco infield with this news? Uh, yeah, you need to be careful with Evan Longoria, I think, at this point. The, the, uh, the graceful aging thing may not be happening uh, for, for Longoria at this point. Still has two seasons remaining on his current contract. Uh, I don't know if you ever had plantar fasciitis, but that kind of injury uh, is something a DH-less National League third baseman doesn't want to start the season with and will likely turn Longoria into uh, even more of a part-time player. Uh, the offseason acquisition of Tommy Vostella and an occasional third base turn by uh, 2020 DH Wilmer Flores 
give San Francisco some real good depth at that position. And I would think I'd bump them both up a tad on your playing time list, uh, especially the plate forward skills with Stella, who had a 281, 370, 449 split over 196 at bats in 2020. Uh, and Mao may be more than just a strong side platoon bat. And uh, Flores would get initial playing time too if, if uh, Longoria is restricted. I noticed at uh, Baseball HQ in these news items, they assess playing time gains and losses, and they've cut to Longoria's plate appearances by 15% and distributed them 10 to Listella, 5 to Flores. 15% is a, a pretty steep loss for anybody who's thinking about rostering Evan Longoria. At Baseball HQ, the news coverage includes estimates of playing time gains and losses, and I see that they've docked to Evan Longoria 15% of his playing time. That's not nothing, and it does really affect his valuation as far as drafts that are coming up over the next little while until we see how serious this plantar fasciitis is. I know people who've had it, and it can be very, very troublesome. It was a big problem for Mark McGuire, if I'm, if I'm correct, and that was uh, something that lasted a long time for him. Yeah, it can be very, it's very painful. I've, I've had it myself. It's very painful. Uh, and uh, it, can, it can take a while to get over. So it, uh, especially if you're, if you, if you could DH, that wouldn't be much of a problem. But trying to play third base with that in the field is, is not something uh, I would want to deal with. Nor would I. In St. Louis, the Cardinals lineup seems to be taking shape. Uh, playing time tomorrow coverage by Dan Marcus looks at the National League Central and uh, what's going to be going on in that Cardinals lineup, according to Dan? Well, Tommy Edmund figures to be the primary second baseman after Colton Wong uh, went, to, went to Milwaukee. And uh, that leaves very little playing time for us to project at second base. Uh, Wong's departure also leaves a void atop the Cardinals' batting order. Uh, he was the leadoff hitter for the entire 2020 season, Wong was. And according to both projections and early spring training results, Edmund figures to fill the void left by Wong as the leadoff hitter. Uh, another key change in the lineup is the projected absence of Matt Carpenter, so long as there isn't a designated hitter in the National League. And the big beneficiary of Carter's absence and Edmund's shift up the lineup appears to be Paul DeJong. DeJong hit primarily fifth last season, but maybe the favorite hit second to start this season. And the rest of the top of the order should be locked in with Paul Goldschmidt batting third and Nolan Arenado batting cleanup. Perhaps most important is what happens in the bottom half of the lineup. Uh, Yadier Molina has hit no lower than sixth in the order through the first four games, uh, though he's also batted fifth and third. If he were to maintain that spot in the lineup into the regular season, Dylan Carlson, Tyler O'Neill, and Harrison Bader would be locked into the bottom third of the order, and that would perhaps limit their, uh, their volume. So that's what the thing is shaping up as. I kind of like the idea of Tommy Edmund in the leadoff position. Uh, that should give him more stolen base opportunities. Not only that, but he's got that three-position eligibility, which adds even more to his value. I think Tommy Edmonds going to move up in the uh, ADPs, presuming that this, especially this part where he's not only playing full-time but moves to the top of the order, I think that's a, a huge value. And it's a bit of a blow, isn't it, to Dylan Carlson and uh, Tyler O'Neill and Harrison Bader all going to be moving down to the bottom of the order, which seems weird, doesn't it, to have your three outfielders down at the bottom of the order? It's usually uh, someplace that you want to have uh, a bit more production. But Dylan Carlson, I've been hearing, is a, a guy who 
could potentially be moving back up the order because he's he's got the great hitting skills. Yeah, that's possible. It's certainly possible. Of the three, Dylan Carlson is the one most likely to be to move up up in the order. But if he remains in the seventh spot, uh, that certainly limits the number of at bats he's going to get. Uh, and uh, so that, that's something I think to keep an eye on. Alain de Leonardis in playing time tomorrow covers the National League East. Uh, all five teams get a look uh, once a week or every 10 days or so. And uh, in this instance, what I really found interesting was the second base battle that's shaping up in Miami because, again, there's a lot of playing time at stake if uh, any one of the three competitors in this race can take a hold of it and run with it. And in the case of at least a couple of them, run with it is the key term. Oh, very definitely, I Jeff Chisholm is locked into the battle for playing time second base uh, despite being the incumbent. So uh, playing time, uh, a, a battle going on, even with Chisholm as the incumbent, manager Don Mattingly has used words like electric to describe him, and his minor league numbers describe a player with exciting power speed potential. Minor league career, 255, 327, 462, 56 home runs, 49 for 61 in stolen bases. So there's clear 2020 upside eventually for Jazz to his home. But the question is, how likely how likely is he to attain that? Uh, and that may depend on his tightening up his swing. His minor league career has a 30.1% strikeout rate. Major league, 66% contact rate in his first 56 at-bats. Uh, two for 11 this spring with one home run, no walks, and three strikeouts. So one playing time advantage Chisholm has over his competitors is that he's a natural shortstop. So he could gain some additional at-bats splitting time up the middle. Uh, if he struggles in camp or at the beginning of the season, though, he could be taking it back to AAA once that season starts in May for some more seasoning. The second candidate in the race, Nick, is Izan Diaz. Uh, I think the interesting thing about him is his second-ever at-bat, he hit a home run off Jacob deGrom, but that certainly hasn't set him up for a lifetime as a power hitter. What does Izan Diaz bring to the competition? Izan Diaz... Uh, has never lived up to that great potential of a home run in his second at bat. Uh, he actually came off a very stellar season when he came to the majors at Triple A New Orleans in 2019. 305, 395, 578, 26 home runs, uh, five stolen bases. Uh, but that loud debut has been marked by ineffectiveness in the major leagues. Uh, uh, and according to the player himself, a lot of self-doubt. So he's put together a few good swings in camp so far, uh, two for 10, but a double and a triple, two walks, three strikeouts. Uh, flashed a 106 uh, expected power index, a 116 speed, and 178 at-bats in 2019. So the skills are there to help the fantasy team. I would keep an eye on his performance uh, as, the, as uh, the preseason goes along because there may be something there, but there may not be yet. Yeah, there may not be yet, I think, is the crucial thing here. Uh, Izan Diaz, as you said, has not really shone in his major league time so far. However, he's young, so there's a, a possibility that he's just going to find his speed as he goes. Uh, the third guy in the race, John Bertie, also a multi-eligible guy, second base outfield eligibility. We think of him as a utility man, but is he on a track that he might get full-time playing time at second? Well, certainly if the other two flop, Berkey is a guy that could, could wind up in there. Played five different positions in 2020, most frequently at second base and center field. 
uh, blocked in center field by Stoney Marte. Uh, but uh, given the uncertainty in the right field role currently in, in Miami, could see some time there. Other avenues for playing time for Birdie are third base, spelling Brian Anderson, and second base, given the two rookies trying to establish themselves ahead of him. If both Chisholm and Diaz were to falter in the spring or the early season, expect to see Bertie and his huge stolen base skills uh, in second base. This guy has stolen 26 stolen bases in 363 at-bats. Uh, that would be a very attractive pickup in drafts with a, a lot of flexibility and uh, a lot of stolen base potential. One of our favorite columns at this time of year is the Market Pulse. Matt Cederholm looking at all of the market implications, uh, ADPs and values and so forth, versus actual skills and looking for opportunities and for avoids. Uh, right now he's looking at starting pitchers, and one of the pitchers that he points out is Blake Snell coming back from injury, going in round three of most drafts. And the question is, Nick, is round three the place to go and get Blake Snell? You know, it's interesting because at this point, uh, Blake Snell has an ADP of 44. Uh, well, his two projections have been ranked 19th. Uh, and so I think the reasons to, to be cautious about Blake Snell, uh, starting with the baseball forecaster, up, top 10 starting pitcher if healthy. That last two words, if healthy, that's been an issue for Blake Snell. Of course, with elbow troubles in 2019-2020, though uh, the latter elbow trouble 2020 was kind of minor, but in five seasons, he's never averaged six-plus innings per start. And in addition, his career third-time penalty, the difference between an OPS facing hitters for the third time in a game versus the first time, is 0.150. Leave average was 0.073. In his career, then, he's had issues sustaining in games. It's not a constant problem. 2019, the penalty was half his average, but 2018-2020, much higher. It's something that'll keep him out of the upper echelon of starting pitchers. Uh, no reason to expect things to be any better in San Diego. Uh, if he has struggled thir the third time through the lineup, he may wind up pitching as, as few innings as he did uh, in any of his earlier seasons. So, uh, match this a pass at the current third round ADP, I think I would as well. Yeah, at the third round, I know people talk about how you have to be more willing than we used to think was appropriate with your early round picks as far as risk goes, but it seems like uh, as much upside as Blake Snell has, he's a Cy Young winner, for goodness sake. And if you get that for your third round, you're going to be happy. But the, the question is, how confident can you be that you're uh, spending that pick in a way that is going, is, well, nobody can say for sure, but is it likely, is it probable that you're going to get full value and, and exactly how probable is it? And then you have to weigh that against the other players who are available in that slot. And I think by that measure, uh, Blake Snell starts to look a little too risky for most uh, situations. Yeah, I think he does at this point. I would not want Blake Snell as my rotation anchor. I had him in the league last year and he was my number five pitcher and that was great. But uh, as a rotation anchor, I think that would be worrisome. And finally, at this time of year, of course, one of the things we're all looking for is a potential sleeper in the saves category, somebody who's not going to be on the radar at uh, this time of year, but who could ascend to the closer role. Doug Dennis covers the relievers in the bullpen buyer's guide, and one of the places he was looking is his hometown of Cincinnati. Now, Cincinnati is currently evaluating roles, trying to figure out who their closer might be. Uh, the, the three most prominent candidates are Amy Garrett, who uh, squeaked to the, the uh, 
uh, at 331 ADP. So makes him some of, somewhat of a sleeper at that level. Lucas Sims. Uh, Garrett had a very terrific 2021, a higher strikeout rate than Sims. Uh, Sims has been a spot starter and reliever. If he converts to back-end work, he could very well improve on his projected skills, uh, given shorter stints. The one thing that pops out looking at the two of them is Sims projected for a 1.2 home run per nine. That's not great, but Garrett's home run per nine is projected to be 1.4. The other issue is that Garrett has mainly worked in setup uh, when the inning is called for neutralizing a key lefty bat. He's a left-hander, and closing would require neutralizing all bats. So while the Reds evaluate, you may want to watch the usage, too. If neither Garrett nor Sims emerges as the guy, then there'll be some mix and match to start the year. It's very doubtful that the saves will be split 11-11-9 uh, with Sean Doolittle being the other guy you might want to watch for. Uh, much more likely one of these relievers takes hold and runs with the job. And the guy to look at as a, as a real sleeper, I think, is Lucas Sims. Yeah, I think the one thing that Doug points out that's really accurate is that uh, given a choice between left-handers and right-handers as closers, most managers will default to the right-handed option. On the other hand, if the in, if the closer who's the left-hander is the only good left-handed reliever in the bullpen, then that uh, is one thing. But with Sean Doolittle back there, now you've got a second left-handed option. Uh, now Doolittle's had some issues as well. But uh, the left-hand, right-hand, I don't think, Nick, is as salient to the uh, discussion as it would be if there was only one top left-hander. If, if Garrett was the only left-hander or if Doolittle was the only left-hander, then I would probably even more be likely to look at Lucas Sims. But as it is, it seems like the competition is open and this is just something we're going to have to watch. Yeah, I think so. I think the thing to be, to be careful about with Amir Garrett is his stats have looked fairly decent in the past, but as Doug points out, a lot of those have been working against left-handers uh, and so if he has to pitch uh, to everybody, what's going to happen? Is that going to make a difference in his skills? And, and it could. All right, Nick, very interesting as always. I do appreciate you taking the time, and we'll catch up with you again next week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, PD. Getting closer to, uh, what, where are we, almost the midpoint of spring training? Not yeah, quite. Not quite, but uh, getting closer and closer to opening day, and we'll talk about that in a second. There's been some developments on that front uh, that I'm curious about your opinion. But let's start with the sort of biggest news story. After the uh, untimely injuries in the Houston rotation, we wondered if they might sign Jake Odorizzi, and sure enough, he, he bided his time and he got a decent deal because he, I guess he figured somebody's going to get hurt somewhere along the line, and Sure enough, he was right. So Jake Odorizzi goes to Houston. What's the fallout there? Yeah, boy, the, he, he, Odorizzi sort of ended up get, getting, you You would think, uh, or at least it appeared to me, that he sort of had the Astros over a barrel, right? Because, right. Uh, you know, Framber Valdez got hurt, and, you know, I was among those who was a little surprised that, you know, broken finger injury ended up being out for the year. But that was obviously a huge blow to that rotation that wasn't that strong to begin with and then on top of it you know Forrest Whitley who's been there sort of uh prize pitching prospect for several years running now but can't uh stop walking under ladders and in front of black cats had another uh you had another significant setback and now it now it looks like he's set for Tommy John surgery so there was a, a pressing need in this uh Houston rotation and Oda Rizzi uh slides right in there very nicely 
so you know that doesn't <laughs> it ends up being net zero from a uh, depth perspective that's better than the uh, the big loss that the Astros looked like they were taking last week. And it's not like uh, Jake Odorizzi has been uh, Mr. Durable either. No, it's not. Um, you know, we you know he's certainly a veteran and has been through the wars, but we don't you know I wouldn't make the mistake of putting you know Durable on him. Uh, you know, he's been on the DL in three of the last four years, missed almost all of 2020 with a uh, strained intercostal, a bruised chest, and a finger injury. So you know he's going to have to come to camp where he's already a little bit behind and you know, demonstrate health and, you know, ramp up. And I'm sure they're going to be careful about not ramping him up too quickly to get him hurt again. So I would not be surprised if he's not quite ready for opening day or the first turn through the rotation, but is on more of a a, a mid-April trajectory. Jock Thompson covered the story for playing time today at Baseball HQ, and he did point out that even with the injuries and the advancing years, he's averaged 165 innings over the last few full seasons. So it's not nothing. I mean, you'd like, of course, to have any pitcher get get you 190 or 200 or even 180. But if you get 165 in a fantasy perspective out of Jake Odorizzi, given his cost, uh, it's not bad. Right. And, you know, the thing about him, and we will find out how much of it was specific to how the Twins managed him versus... Uh, you know, what they might ask of him in Houston is those 160, 165 innings were actually a full season start workload for him. He started 33, 28, 32, 30 games in the last four seasons. I mean, that's a pretty good workload right there, but they were holding his innings down because he was not really going deep into games. They weren't quite treating him as a twice through the order guy, but it was pretty close to that. They were, you know, they, they were having a, he was basically a five, five and a third and fly kind of guy. Of course, here at Baseball HQ, we like to look at the skills rather than the outcomes and his skills haven't been that great. You know, when you look at it, uh, sort of a four fifty expected ERA, relatively low swinging strike and strikeout minus walk percentages. And yet he delivers results. And every so often we have to accept that there's guys who, don't have the skills we would like, but nonetheless seem to deliver results pretty consistently. I mean, he's been an $18 earner as recently as a couple of years ago. Yeah, 2019 was actually pretty good. And as I'm eyeballing his you know, longer-term trend and you know our records on him go back to 2012, he does something that I'm not sure I've ever seen before. Going from, I mean, 2012, so we're looking at nine or ten years of stats, his velocity has actually been like steady, steadily increasing through his career, which, like I said, I'm not sure I've ever seen before. His, uh, 20, 2019, he you know, spiked his velocity to you know a tick under 93 miles an hour, and that came with his a career best strikeout rate of uh, 10.1 per nine, which uh, you know is pretty interesting. Uh, you know, obviously, then the 2020, I rattled off the number of injuries he had last year, and he only threw 14 innings. So we'll we'll just throw that out. Yeah. So you know, as he gets deeper into his 30s, that trick is going to get tougher and tougher to keep pulling off. But uh, you know, he he is uh, you know, he should be a reliable fixture in the middle of that rotation for Houston. And you know, given the range of places where he could have landed as a free agent, you know, especially as it got late into the uh, late into the off season here, this is a uh, this is a pretty good place for his value. If that velocity trend continues, by the time he's what forty two, forty three, he'll be in Nolan. He'll Ryan be throwing one hundred five totally. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
one other thing to think about when we're considering Odorizzi is the move from Minnesota to Houston park-wise. Minnesota is a fairly uh, helpful park for pitchers, and Houston, to be charitable, is not. I mean, it's not as bad as people think, but it's not as good as Minnesota for pitchers. Yeah, they're actually closer than you might think. Houston plays, you know, actually reduces power, if not run scoring overall, uh, which, you know, hasn't been a particular bugaboo of uh, Odorizzi's, but the, um, you know, there's obviously a weather component there too. Uh, In this day and age, you know, looking at Odorizzi's, you know, home runs allowed, you know, 1.4, 1.9, 1.1, 0.9. I mean, given where home runs have been going in the, uh, in the recent, in the recent past, that's not bad, but he does have sort of a fly ball tilt. So you got to be a little bit worried about that. Staying in Texas, a bit of news. They plan to have a full house, 40,000 plus paying customers on opening day. And I don't know how you feel about that given the health situation, but it seems like there are certain areas of your country where uh, they just uh, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead seems to be the uh, governing principle. And Speaking of potential disasters, uh, Jonathan Hernandez is now out for four weeks or more. He's got an arm injury, which leaves Jose Leclerc to close, but his skills don't seem particularly rock solid. Ray, uh, is there anybody else lurking that we should be interested in as far as the saves race goes in Texas? This was a blow to me in terms of saves because Hernandez was probably my favorite non-incumbent closer target for this spring because of what you were just saying about the shakiness of Leclerc's skills. I thought Hernandez might take the job out, right? He might, he might've been the guy who was closing like three days into the season. I thought, you know, the change the change might just come that quickly. Not that Leclerc is terrible, but I, but Hernandez is better. And I think the team is clear on Leclerc's shortcomings. And I, I thought the door was just, already hanging open for Hernandez to bust through it. That may still be the case, but, you know, Hernandez is going to have to stop and get healthy now. And that becomes, if you still want to speculate on him, that's probably more of a second half play, if at all, this year. So in the short term, that's a little more job security for Leclerc. And, you know, that probably, I mean, that probably doesn't change Leclerc's value that much because, you know, if Leclerc was going to have first shot anyway, it really just, you know, it comes down to Leclerc whether he can hold it or not. And that's a measure, you know, that's a problem that his own volatility is going to solve, not as much someone taking the job away from him. I mean, he's got huge strikeout rates. He's been striking out, uh, you know, 30, 33% of guys he's been facing for the last couple of years now. He had 100 strikeouts and uh, 70 games in 2019. But, you know, there's some uh, volatility that comes with that too. His walk rates have floated with the 20% level in the short season. Well, that was only two innings, never mind. Uh, <laughs> but 11 and, 13, 11 and 13% in his last two full seasons, 2018 and 19. That's still scary. Uh, so, you know, Leclerc will you know, be at risk of pitching himself out of this job at some point, regardless of who the next in line is. But the who the next in line is just got a lot more interesting in light of Hernandez's inju- injury. Right. The depth chart at Baseball HQ for Texas had uh, Jolie Rodriguez and Jonathan Hernandez kind of tied with 10% each of the saves behind uh, Leclerc and a couple of other all-surrounds like Ian Kennedy and uh, a guy named Demarcus Evans. And as well, they have Ian Kennedy, the former closer in Kansas City, who was actually pretty effective in that role in Kansas City, uh, is in camp. So they have options. Uh, Maybe run us through some of these options, Ray. Yeah, they're 
it's it's a rogues gallery of sorts. Uh, Joey Rodriguez, as you said, is probably next in line from our projected saves percentages, which we're still shuffling after that particular injury. Uh, it was he was a sort of one of these pitch mix winners last year, where he introduced a new changeup and got uh, got pretty good results. But again, in just thirteen innings, uh, he struck out seventeen and had a two thirteen ERA and a hundred and fifty two BPV. But just to tell you how much of a changeup, how much of a difference that changeup made, and you know that was the first time we had seen him in the majors since twenty seventeen, back when he hung up a six thirty three ERA. So. You know, there's, there, the, the track record here is, uh, you know, we're looking at very short samples to try to see if he can carry over those recent successes. Uh, Kennedy, you mentioned, you know, obviously had a run as a uh, closer in Kansas City. Uh, I was looking at his page this morning before we jumped on the air and was reminded of one of my uh, my favorite little quips from the forecaster this year when I noted that he was removed from the closer role at the start of last season by noted sabermetrician Mike Matheny, yeah. um, who, who decided he wanted to go with the uh, the bullpen by committee that ended up basically settling into uh, Greg Hollander's closer role there. Uh, but you know, Kennedy ended up getting you know leaving Kansas City this offseason. He's on a on either a minor league deal or a non roster invite with Texas but his chances of sticking have probably directly improved in light of the injury to Hernandez. And, you know, going back just, as you said, to 2019, I mean, just in the last full season of MLB, he had 30 saves and a 341 ERA that was, you know, backed by a respectable 388 ERA. I mean, none of that is vintage closer territory, but, you know, in a, in a pinch, if they get fed up with the volatility of Leclerc, he's probably a Band-Aid that can hold the job for a month or a couple of months and convert, you know, a decent percentage of his save ops. Going, going deeper down the depth chart, uh, as I was scanning it this morning, one other note, one other guy that sort of uh, piqued my interest was Matt Bush, who you know, may not be ready to go right at the start of the season. You'll remember that he, uh, you know, has sort of had a winding career path with a number of uh, personal struggles uh, that ended, you know, ended up having uh, Tommy John surgery in summer of 2019. So he's not quite at that. Uh, two years removed from TJ, but he is past that 18 month mark. So for a reliever being asked to throw one inning at a time, that's, you know, it, it's possible he might be a fixture in this bullpen fairly early in the season. And he had 10 saves back in his uh, last sort of foolish season in 2017. So uh, it, it comes with the big 97, 98 mile an hour fastball. If all that stuff is intact, then, uh, you know, he is probably a deep speculation here. Maybe even deeper, uh, DeMarcus Evans was called up late in September. He shot through the minor leagues, Ray, and seems to be kind of on track in their plans for some high leverage innings. What what do we know about DeMarcus Evans? Yeah, you're right. He was sort of a meteor through the minors. Uh, I think he hit four levels in two years. Uh, you know, and he's uh, you know a fastball, uh, curveball guy, which you know could track into the ninth inning, but um you know, where have you heard this before? He's got, he's got good stuff, but has very little idea where it's going. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, he's going to have to demonstrate some control and given just that he's a, uh, you know, relative unknown on the, on the, on the big league roster, at least with all of four major league innings to his credit, you would think he's going to start in some kind of lower leverage role, but you know, these bullpens end up being a meritocracy. So if he, you know, starts hanging up some zeros early in the season, he could slide up the depth chart very quickly. You know, in, in these volatile situations, I'm going to give a little bit extra points to 
to Ian Kennedy because he had the role in the past. And sometimes when a manager has to face the angry hordes of reporters, why did you put in a guy like Demarcus Evans, given his you know skimpy track right. record? He he might be more comfortable, especially if there's been a few blown saves. Saying, "Well, I went with the you know the experienced hand." There's so much to be said for guile and experience in that closer role and the usual bushwa that they throw out in situations like this. So uh, if trouble hits, they might just want to go for the guy who seems like an anchor in a storm. Yeah, I think that's probably the right approach to this. Like I said, I was chasing all kinds of shares of Hernandez um, before he got hurt. But now Kennedy's probably the place to look for a next in line. And again, just to go back to where we were in the beginning, next in line behind Leclerc looks like a pretty good place to be because that grenade's going to go off sooner or later. Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com writes the Buyer's Guide columns for both hitters and starting pitchers, and we'll talk about both because uh, this week's columns, right on schedule, are sleepers. These are guys that Stephen's analysis has revealed might be really quite useful to have on on a roster because they're not going to cost a ton, and they have the potential at least for some uh, good success. And uh, the first name on Stephen's list that I'd like to talk about, I know you're interested in Bobby Dahlbeck. Yeah, this is a you know a local interest for me, but there's a uh, you know just just to give, slap a comp on it. There's an awful lot of Joe, of young Joey Gallo here. You know <laughs> he hits some balls that uh, you, you just can't believe how far they go. Uh, you know his barrel rate uh, in the short season 2020 was just absurd at you know 22 percent, which you know if you have any kind of power and you're barreling the ball 22 percent of the time, a lot of good things is going to happen. Uh, the the downside of that is the contact rate, which is just abysmal. You know, he struck out um, <laughs> literally half the time last year, which is, uh, you know, something that's got to get better. But, you know, it's one of those, you know, if you could just nudge the contact rate up even into the, the 60s without sacrificing that barrel rate, the, the, then that combination starts to get interesting very quickly. It could just as easily, easily go the other way, and he could either lose the barrel rate or start, you know, striking out more than half the time, which is going to end up with a trip to a trip to the minors. But, uh, you know, it's it, not that far from getting pretty interesting in that sense. He's one of the interesting guys in the hard contact index metric that we use at BaseballHQ.com. He hits the hell out of the ball, but his index is actually sub-100, like sub-league average, just because of that tremendous amount of uh, striking out. Exactly. And, you know, in some ways, the you know, HCTX is doing both good and bad work there because it's not – you know, it's not capturing the you know the, the volatility, the distance between the two metrics, but in terms of the overall number, it's getting you right to the point you need to know, which is below average because you can't make any kind of living with a strikeout rate that's fifty percent. But that could you know you tack on ten points of contact to that, and uh, you know things start to get interesting pretty quickly. Another interesting guy. I know you're interested in Brandon Lau in Tampa. Yeah, I've been collecting a lot of him in my drafts so far this year. Uh, happily, every time I do it, it's uh, you know he really seems like a sort of a premium target. You know, certainly at a different point in the draft. You know, Stevens using a uh, definition of sleeper here. We should say that doesn't really uh, you know discriminate by points in the draft. You know, we're talking about Dahlbeck, who's you know an end gamer in a mixed league versus uh, Wow, who I took for instance in. You know, round five of TGFBI. So, you know, we're we're kind of all over the marketplace here. We should say that a little bit. We don't just mean endgame sleepers here. Uh, but you know, Stephen characterized Wow uh, 
because of his gains and point discipline, you know, something Bobby Dalbeck could look at. The nice thing about that is he's concurrently improving his point discipline and his power, which uh, we always like to see in terms of uh, skill consolidation. Uh, he's all, and, and at the same time, also taking up his barrel rates. So you put together, you know, better point discipline, swinging at the right pitches, barreling them when he does swing. Uh, and, you know, leading, yielding more power as a result, um, you know, his 17.5% barrel rate was in the 98th percentile of all hitters last year. Uh, so, you know, Stephen pointed, said, you know, that well, flat tip is a premium breakout target largely because of the uh, the barrel rate trend line. Sean Murphy in Oakland is a catcher. They're always in r- r- uh, tough supply. Even in mixed leagues, you, you want to have – the kind of catcher is at least not going to kill you. And Sean Murphy kind of fits that bill. The problem here is he has a, more than a little bit of trouble staying on the field. Yeah, health is really the concern there. And But, you know, in a, in a world where basically all the catchers we deal with have warts of skill or productivity or health, you know, we're, you know, we can look past that a little bit. And in, in, he makes a really nice target in the catcher pool. And what's attracting Steven to him here is a combination of a couple of things. One, uh, you know, his plate discipline also improved a bunch in 2020. You know, he nudged his walk to strikeout ratio, his batting eye up to uh, 0.65, which is in heck, in this game, in this day and age, it's borderline elite, especially for a catcher, and that sets a nice batting average floor, which sort of removes the risk of this being the uh, you know two twenty hitting catcher that we all dread rostering. Uh, and you take that batting eye and you combine that with uh, you know him still consolidating his uh, you know his hard contact metrics. Uh, you know he's got uh, he was ninety first percentile on exit velocity last year. 83rd in barrel rate, which is, you know, that's again, that's for all players. So I can only assume that that's much higher for catchers. So, you know, again, you know, he's, he's swinging at the right pitches and hitting them hard when he does, which is, uh, you know, a foundation for success if ever there was one. Indeed. Uh, and finally, the one of the guys you liked on Steven's list, Manuel Margot, uh, the center fielder in Tampa. Yeah. You know, thinking back to where we were with him a year ago, we were sort of, Confused by where Tampa was going and acquiring him, you know they'd made a big trade with San Diego to you know bring him in, but you know they already had Kiermaier in center field, and it wasn't 100 percent clear how the pieces fit together there. And Margot through last season and especially the postseason really, uh, you know, sort of staked his claim there. And the you know the excellent center field defense is going to keep him in the lineup. Um, but he's still down in uh, you know his ADP is in the 260s, so that's. Uh, you know, that, that's down in the late teens and rounds uh, in a mixed league. Uh, you know, his stat cast profile isn't fantastic. His barrel rate is only 19th percentile. But, uh, you know, he's been nudging down the strikeout rate, which means more balls in play. And, you know, for him, more opportunities to run because stolen bases are a, a part of part of his game. So Steven threw a 280, 15 home run, 30 season ups, 30, 30 bag upside going on him if, uh, if all that holds together. And that's certainly... That's certainly attractive at an ADP that sits around, you know, round 18 or something like that. Interesting thing about uh, Manuel Margot, I was looking at his contact rate uh, since 2016, uh, which was a short short sample, 37 at-bats only, but 81%, then 78, then 82%, then 78, then 83%. 
<laughs> I see a pattern here. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I think the next number there is 78. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those uh, puzzles that they put in the newspaper for you to try to suss out only a very easy one. And at the same time, his walk rate has bounced around uh, as low as six, as high as eight or nine. So uh, between putting the ball into play and walking a lot, you'd think he'd have a, a fairly decent on-base percentage, but it's just barely fairly decent at 327-ish. Yeah, that doesn't quite quite check out, you know. And and the the reason for that is if you look at, you know, for a guy with his speed, the you know his hit rates are kind of low. His BABIP has you know been sub three hundred for the last couple of full seasons, which you you don't really expect to see there. Especially he doesn't have a huge ground ball tilt, but he's got a little bit of a ground ball tilt. So you would think he'd be beating out some balls. The other thing is though, nineteenth uh, percentile barrel rate means he may be making a lot of that kind of medium contact that are yeah the fly balls know, or cans of corn exactly yeah and the medium hit ground balls are actually worse than soft hit ground balls because they're just you know three hoppers to short and out you go and, right right and, the soft ones are the ones you beat out yeah yeah a guy a guy with his speed needs to hit more make more soft contact uh, as. Uh, Gene McCaffrey was often fond of saying about uh, Billy Hamilton, why were they trying to get him to barrel the ball up? What he should be learning to do is... <laughs> it's, it's the is, worst thing you can do. Yeah, yeah. nub it or hit those uh, Baltimore <laughs> yeah, chops. Two, two, shots, two shots down the third baseline, exactly. Yeah, and just get the ball in place somewhere that's not right at somebody and, and he's, you know beat it out because you can run. Uh, one name that uh, wasn't on your list, but I'd like to talk about because it's on mine. I'm very interested in Anthony Santander. I had him years ago when he was just starting out and it wasn't that great, but this career is taking shape in a pretty good direction. Yeah, he's definitely an intriguing target, one one that I have not been able to collect much of this in my draft so far. But uh, you know, reading Stephen's commentary had me, you know, with some uh, some regret or some FOMO on that, as the kids say. Um, you know, his barrel rate tread is excellent. He's got it's gone from five to seven and a half to just over 10 last year. And, you know, again, like we were talking about, I think with Lau earlier, his plate skills are consolidating at the same time. You know, he had a 84% contact rate last year. And if you're putting the bat on the ball at all, 84% of the time, and then barreling 10% of those, I mean, that's a lot of barrels. Um, so, you know, you, you, you extrapolate that to a full season. And, you know, Stephen thought that we could see like a 300 batting average 30 home run season coming which is you know as high a ceiling as anybody on this list really and his uh you know his and he doesn't cost that much oh exactly right uh, contact rate uh, rising steadily all the way up to 84 percent in the short season last year but lest we think it's a short sample variation which it probably is at least in part you're looking at 77 and 79 the previous two years so it's not like he's uh, bobby dahlbeck and just you know managed to throw in an 84 percent out of left field Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's an incremental improvement. It, it probably makes it more likely to be able to stick. Stephen Nickrand also wrote about his sleepers on the pitcher side. Again, not all of these names are the traditional end game sleepers. I think what Stephen's getting at here is at the slot where they're being drafted, they're going to be in a position to deliver some pretty good stats and pretty good values. In fact, uh, these are guys in Stephen's definition who earned between 5 and $15 in the short season but have really high skills. And one of the names on here I've seen rising some helium under Jose Barrios. Yeah, and he's uh, you know become an interesting target, uh, not for me, but for a lot of people in that sort of sub ace category, you know, after the top 12 or 15 starting pitchers are going, going off the board. And then there's another, you know, there's another class of pitchers, you know, in a mixed league, he gets into ADP around guys like Zach Grink 
Lucky and Zach Plesak and uh, Carlos Carrasco is another one. Uh, you know, in that sort of round five, six, seven sort of sort of range. And you know, I still got TGFBI on my mind. Uh, you know, in that, in that kind of draft. Uh, but you know, some of the things to like about Barrios, you know, he's he's established sort of a consistent floor to start with. And in the three of the last four seasons, he's had an ERA between three, seven, five, and four. But amid that seeming consistently, his swing strike rate continues to jump forward. And he added a mile and a half, a one and a half mile per hour uh, velocity jump in 2020, which seems to think it, you know, we seem to think it could unlock some further gains in swinging strikes and eventually have that trickle back to ERA. So, you know, Steven thought that even though, uh, you know, we've seen those, you know, him in that 375 to four range that there's still a uh, sub 3.50 breakout here. Expected ERA, however, says 379, 430, 434 the last three years, including the short year, uh, year last year. So there's uh, a little bit of risk here, but the uh, the market doesn't seem to be pricing it in when they're considering the stats that Jose Barrios might want to deliver. Uh, this is an interesting case to think about Jose Barrios. Yeah, and you know the other thing about him is you know he's uh, sort of established himself. You, you know he's a little young for this tag, but he's also established himself as kind of a workhorse. Uh, you know there hasn't you know he hasn't been on the DL, and you know he threw you know his his expected twelve starts and sixty something innings last year. But you know in 2018, 2019, he took the ball thirty two times each year, and you know t- with one hundred ninety two and two hundred innings, you know we don't really we aren't really projecting anybody to get to those levels this year, but. Barrios should be among the leaders in innings pitch wherever that falls. You know, he's probably as good a bet as anybody for, you know, 175 to 180, maybe the low 180s this year. And that that additional volume, as we've been talking about so much this winter, is going to be hard to find. So Barrios might be giving you, you know, 15 more innings than average pitcher X. And that means, you know, an extra trickle of strikeouts, an extra win or two. Yeah, you got to like innings just like you have to like plate appearances on the hitting side. Uh, John Means, a left-hander in Baltimore, Stephen Nickran says, doesn't seem like a typical breakout target, but he might be. Yeah, and you know, I, and I'm guilty of this too. I mean, you look at, I mean, I, for almost as long as I've been doing this, you know, the Orioles have been bad, and the AL East has been a nightmare for pitchers. So the, the team context is just so bad there that it's easy to just dismiss Means and say you don't want to don't want to go there. But Stephen correctly points out that that would be a mistake. Uh, you know, even coming off of his 4.53 ERA in 2020, but there was a lot of skills growth under the hood there. Uh, you know, he spiked his command. Uh, 20% came on his BB. Uh, you know. His, Dudged his swinging K strike, his, his swinging strike rate up to uh, almost thirteen percent, which is a really good number for a starting pitcher. That gets into uh, you know quality reliever territory, and all that while pounding the strike zone. And despite the four fifty three ERA, he finished the season really well, hanging up a uh, you know one sixty five BPV in September in twenty nine innings. So you know he finished with a flourish and has you know a lot of uh, skills consolidation under under the hood and is an under uh, and is going to be sort of hidden by both the Baltimore team context and his bad ERA in twenty twenty. But you know flashback to twenty nineteen and he hung up a three sixty ERA. Granted was not skill supported either. But um, you know that that's before some of those uh, some of those skill games that Steven spotted in 2020. So there's uh, you know again some some risk there, but also you know the price is uh, quite cheap right now with a uh, ADP in the uh, in the low 200s. 
Stephen pointed out that the market seems to be missing some hidden breakout potential on Yankees left-hander Jordan Montgomery. Yeah, boy, talk about uh, differences in team context to go from one extreme to the other here. And one reason to like Montgomery is that the uh, you know he's obviously pitching with a very good Yankee offense behind him, and the Yankees, while they have fortified that rotation, also fortified it with uh, you know the likes of Corey Kluber, Jameson Tyone, who we can certainly expect to not throw full full throw full seasons. Davey Garcia's lurking there, but he'll likely be innings limited. We might see Luis Severino sometime this summer. Long way around of saying that while the Yankees have a lot of rotation options, they don't have a lot of reliable ones. And Montgomery, you know, as long as he stays healthy and effective, should be a fixture in this rotation. Uh, why is that exciting? You know, he hung up uh, 144 BPV last year with a, a 13 and a half swing percent swing strike rate, which is very, uh, very useful for a starting pitcher and another 20% K minus BB. So this is, you know, actually these numbers are all very similar to means just with uh, sort of the polar opposite of, uh, of team context here. Can't overlook the injury risk. Of course, the Tommy John recovering guy from a couple of years ago as well, or three years ago, I think. And uh, so there's always that lurking around in the back. So you, you may want to put a bit more of a floor underneath Jordan Montgomery when it comes time to assessing what slot you're looking at, but at the same time, don't think that this guy's all of a sudden going to turn out to be uh, Justin Verlander or anything like that. Uh, no, no, there's not going to be 180 innings here. I mean, we look at his log and, you know, 44 innings in, 20, in 2020, he was out for all, almost all of 2019 with the Tommy John, only 28 innings, 27 innings in 2018. So, I mean, you're looking at, you know, 70-something innings over the last three years. So if we got, you know, 120 to 140 this year, I think we'd probably have to be pretty happy with that. On the other hand, maybe he's very well rested. (laughs) (laughs) There's that too. There's that too. And and, uh, the last guy you were interested in, Ray, in Stephen's list, I'm interested too, Ryan Yarborough in Tampa. Yeah, you know, sort of the poster child for the, uh, you know, still uh, maybe best known for that Big 16 win season back in 2018 when yeah when he was that second man in in the uh, you know in front of the in front of the openers and gobbled up so many wins in that Rays rotation but you know he, he's actually yeah you know, actually graduated to being a uh, you know effective sort of true starting pitcher uh, you know last year he hung up uh, you know a 96 BPV in 56 innings um, you know he's still being drafted pretty late. But uh, Stephen calls him a potential top 100 pick for 2022 after this season because uh, you know he's so, he continues to pound the strike zone with a uh, a low ball percentage, um, but still missing a lot of bats. Another starter who's got a swing strike rate over 13, uh, percent and that's that's the latest in a growth trend. He went from 9.2 to 10.6 to 13.7 there. So if he's a getting swinging strikes and b getting him while throwing strikes, it's not a case where he's just throwing sliders in the dirt and batters aren't batters aren't able to lay off of them. And if they make an adjustment, he doesn't have an answer. It seems like you know the combination of the low ball percentage and the high swinging strikes says he's getting swinging strikes in the zone, which is really a uh, you know really a key that you look for. Yeah, it is uh, one of the things that I like to look at is this new uh, metric that they've come up with: uh, whiffs plus called strikes, so they exclude foul balls. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's turning out to be a pretty pretty good metric for assessing uh, pitching, especially pitching on volume. And and uh, Ryan Yarbrough, when I look at this combination of low ball rate, high swinging strike rate, I bet it's pretty good. I would think it probably is. Yeah. 
Ray, before we let you go, I have to ask, how did the online version of First Pitch Florida go uh, this past weekend? Boy, it was a lot of fun. It was a uh, you know, it was a bit of a grueling weekend at times, but it was uh, you know I think it went about as well as it could have. We had a couple hundred people spending more hours than you know is really recommended by the CDC on Zoom. I think so, you know, but you know the attendance was very good. We got all the sessions recorded, so we've got people you know catching up for the uh, hour or two when they had to go walk their dog or go to the supermarket or what have you. But, uh, you know, we had an incredible panel of speakers and we're so grateful to everybody who popped on for an hour to share their insights that were, you know, it was really just, you know, killer insightful panel after killer insightful panel. And we had the labor drafts going on every night and those were uh, super interesting to watch. I I jumped in on Sunday night and did a little bit of a bit of live commentary with DVR, which was interesting. Um, But, you know, there were, I like to think there was something for everybody there. And as far as that, you know, the technology went, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, it went about as well as it could have. It's certainly not the same thing as being in person and, uh, you know, shoot, passing, uh, you know, beers of around the country over the fire pit, et cetera. But we, you know, we did, uh, we did the best we could with it. And we're really optimistic that we will be, that we will be back doing live events come this fall with Arizona. Although, you know, one takeaway from this event is that we heard from a lot of people who said, you know, travel is impossible for me due to, you know, young kids or expense or whatever. So really love having this online option available. So I would imagine going forward, we will probably have to find a way to serve both audiences. So that's okay. We will, uh, you know, five years ago, I could not have imagined doing one of these things online for the entire weekend, but uh, the technology's come a long way. So, you know, great things are possible. I was going to ask uh, whether First Pitch Arizona, first of all, what's the status of the planning? And second of all, are you looking at maybe turning that thing into a combination live and televised event? Yeah, I mean, I think that would be the holy grail would be to actually, you know, stream some stuff from uh, the live events and sort of kill the two birds with one stone Uh, that, you know, there are some production uh, issues with that that I'm not I'm not sure we've evolved to that level yet but I can much like I was just saying with uh, you know doing the all remote conference I would imagine that only gets easier over time so we're probably uh, you know we'll, that will probably be where we end up but in the meantime you know we were batting out around options this week like doing first pitch Florida next spring but then coming home and doing like a you know one day or Friday night, all day Saturday kind of thing that is sort of a sort of a recap, sort of a refresher. Plus, by the time you get into like where we are now in like mid-March, there's plenty of you know spring training news that changes quickly in an intervening week or two after a live event. So you know, there's all kinds of opportunities to refresh and revise the analysis there. Um, as far as Arizona in the fall, we're hopeful we've got a hotel reservation that we rolled over from last year that we, you know, are, we, we hope to be able to use, I think pandemic wise, we're probably going to be in good shape there by, you know, October, November, the, the variable at this point, or the thing more likely to cause us trouble is the Arizona fall league. There's no official confirmation that they're going to have an AFL this year, given the, the delayed minor league season, you know, we're not sure what they'll want to do with players who played a short minor league season, whether they want to keep playing or whether they're after, especially after all the minor leaguers missing 2020, they think that, you know, getting their 100 or 120 minor league games in is quote unquote enough. Uh, or if, you know, that's where the variables are. So we're going to be watching that. And we're hopeful that around the time that the minor league season starts around May 1st or so that they'll, uh, that MLB will make some announcements in that regard and allow us to sort of figure out from the planning perspective, what makes the most sense. 
Well, fingers crossed. You know, it would be such a great way to come out of this pandemic experience to be able to hang out at the fire pit and to go watch some games. And, you know, have you given any thought to if Major League Baseball says we're just not going to have games, is there any thought to do in uh, Arizona, uh, first pitch Arizona anyway? There is. I mean, that's certainly something you know, we've batted around and would probably, uh, you know, pull our usual attendees about and see what the interest level was there. You know, I joked with, um, you know, somebody asked this question on, on the Zoom last weekend, and I joked that, you know, for fairness of travel, if there's no AFL, but we still want to do the conference, we should do it in like Omaha or something just to, you know, give everybody, give everybody a, uh, you know, a more central destination than, you know, selfishly me having to fly from uh, Boston to Arizona to not watch baseball games, but um, you know, all of that's TBD, but yeah, I think uh, all options are open. And I, I, I share your perspective that uh, I, I think come this fall, there's going to be a huge appetite to have a conference. And if there aren't any ball games there, I, I something tells me that people won't care, but we're, we'll, we will hope that there are. Even if there aren't games, I wonder about uh, first pitch Omaha in November. Uh, <laughs> also true. I, I've lived in a prairie situation where uh, <laughs> November is not exactly, I mean, most of it's indoors. I guess you could say everybody could just walk around that way. Yeah. But, but, you know, point, point being like, you're going to reimagine it. You know, somebody, of course, sure, it, yeah. it took all of about five, it took all of about five seconds for somebody to mention Las Vegas too, which obviously has a whole oh, other yeah. set of appeals too. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways that can go if we're not tethered to, uh, to surprise and people. Peoria and Sloan Park and all of those places where we spend so much time. Go to Peoria, Illinois. There you go. The, the home of Caterpillar well, lovely, Another place that's lovely in November. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have our regular HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Extra Innings, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Rotisserie Gaming Strategy, Michael Waddell has part two of his annual review of pitchers who could anchor a Santana plan for building a fantasy pitching staff. In Playing Time Tomorrow, Matt Dodge looks at the plentiful hitter options at second, third, and short in the American League Central. And in the Arsenal Report, analyst Tanner Smith debuts a new column covering changes in pitchers' arsenals, like Lucas Giolito's downer pitch. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance, validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. Buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the market pulse and keepers columns. Injury analysis in the big hurt. And groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections. They're updated every day during the season, every day during the preseason as well. There are daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers to help you manage your team once the drafts are done. Add it all up. There's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
And before we roll ahead, I also wanted to let you know about our next show, another Two Tout Tuesday edition coming up, Steve Gardner from USA Today. Hey, it's Leviathan time. And Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and FantasyAlarm.com. That's Steve Gardner and Glenn Colton coming up Tuesday here on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer and my extra innings comment are coming up. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Milwaukee outfielder Garrett Mitchell is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Garrett Mitchell was the Brewers' first-round pick in the 2020 draft after a stellar collegiate career at UCLA. Mitchell was widely considered one of the best athletes in the draft class, with some scouts giving him an 80 grade for his speed. At UCLA, the 21-year-old Mitchell slashed 327 with a 393 on-base percentage and a 478 slugging percentage with 24 doubles, 15 triples, and 6 home runs and 477 at-bats. He also drew 44 walks and swiped 28 bases. The only reason Mitchell lasted as long as he did in the draft last year when the Brewers nabbed him with the 20th overall pick is that he has type 1 diabetes, which caused some teams to worry about his durability over a 162-game schedule. While those concerns are understandable, Mitchell did play a full 62-game schedule with UCLA in 2019 and didn't miss any action. On the field, Mitchell has average to above tools across the board. He has a smooth left-handed stroke that should produce at least average power as he fills out his athletic 6'3", 215-pound frame. Defensively, Mitchell is a true center fielder who gets good reads, has plus range, and has a strong arm. While Mitchell's path to full-time at-bats may seem cloudy right now, the Brewers' Jackie Bradley Jr. and Avisiel Garcia are both slated to be free agents at the end of the 2021 season, and Mitchell should be ready to make his big league debut by mid to late 2022. Long-term, Garrett Mitchell has exciting tools and is a must-own in NL-only keeper formats, with the tools to be the Brewers' next 2020 player. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ scouting team and has his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, Chris Blessing has dropped his 2021 top starting pitcher prospects. You play Keepers or Dynasty? This you gotta see. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your draft and have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Seattle outfielder Taylor Trammell is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. With the 35th overall selection in the 2016 Major League Baseball Amateur Player Draft, the Cincinnati Reds selected Taylor Trammell from Mount Perrin Christian High School in Kennesaw, Georgia. Not only was Taylor Trammell voted as the MVP of the SiriusXM All-Star Futures game at Nationals Park in Washington, D.C. in 2018, but his bat from that game was reportedly sent to Cooperstown after belting a 438-foot moonshot to the beltway and back during that game. Did we mention that by the time Taylor Trammell had his MVP bat sent to Cooperstown, he had already made his Major League debut one year prior in 2017? So he was drafted in 2016, debuted in 2017, and won the MVP of the SiriusXM All-Star Futures game in 2018. So what did he do for an encore in 2019? After he was traded to San Diego in the Trevor Bauer deal, 
Taylor Trammell was named to his second consecutive SiriusXM All-Star Futures game roster as a Padre in 2019 before being traded, again, to Seattle in 2020. Are you keeping up with all of this? (laughs) But despite all of that activity, Seattle Mariners outfielder Taylor Trammell is still only 23 years old. That's why Taylor Trammell, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. But be warned, he is trending upward. According to a recent USA Today article published on March 9th, 2021 to be exact, for all the attention on the Seattle Mariners' decision-making surrounding top prospect Jared Keldick, there is another young outfielder who seems more likely to be on the Mariners' opening day roster, of course referring to Taylor Trammell, The article further points out that Taylor Trammell has never played above double-A, but with Jared Kelnick sidelined by a knee injury and a couple other outfielders struggling early in spring training, Taylor Trammell could have a shot at being on the field when the Mariners open the season on April 1st against San Francisco, according to USA Today. A career 270 hitter in the minors with apparently 438-foot power, but not a ton of home runs, 10 total at AA in 2019 to be exact, Taylor Trammell also heisted 41 bags in 2017, displaying a possibly decent and maybe combustible power-speed combination, where combustible might mean a potential combination of bust and able. So take your pick, and we mean that quite literally, with 23-year-old Seattle Mariners outfielder Taylor Trammell as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about thoughts regarding pitching strategy in a points league draft. I just finished my draft in the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, a snake draft using rotisserie scoring, and now I'm turning my attention to another NFBC-style draft put on by those wild and crazy guys at Razzball. The Raz Slam draft is a best ball cut line draft. We draft 42 players each, and the computer each week figures out what combination of players would get us the most points while also meeting the standard position requirements. There are a whole pile of individual 12-team leagues and an overall competition as well. It's also a points league with this structure. On the hitting side, at-bats are worth negative one. Hits are worth four, runs and RBIs two apiece, and home runs a big six points. Stolen bases are worth a very helpful five points each as well. And if you're keeping track, you'll realize home runs a six-pointer event, two points each for the run and RBI makes ten, and it's a hit, that's a 14-point event. Note that hitters only have one negative scoring event, the at-bat. Pitchers have a much tougher road. Innings pitched are worth three points, and strikeouts are worth one point apiece. Wins are worth six, and saves are worth eight. But each hit or walk allowed is worth negative one, and each earn run allowed is worth negative two. I suspected that with so many negative scoring events on the pitching side of the ledger that the point structure is going to reward hitters, especially power hitters with decent batting averages over even the very top pitchers. So I grabbed my favorite projections, converted the counting stats into points using that formula, and sure enough, the top 32 players, that's almost three rounds worth of players, were all hitters. 
And what's more, the gap from the top hitters to the top pitchers is very wide. I stacked up the hitters by points and set them beside the pitchers by points. At the top of the table, Ronald Acuna projects to score 254 more points than Jacob deGrom. 254 points. That's like getting Hunter Harvey or Devin Williams for free. The points gap remains pretty solid all the way down the draft. The 108th hitter, that would be the last hitter taken in a regular league, is Tommy Edmond. His 427 points, about equal to a Jose Barrios or Sonny Gray, who are taken much earlier in the draft. Now, if I'm right, and stranger things have happened, it's pretty crazy to use your high draft picks to take pitchers and immediately give up those hundreds of points. Doesn't that seem crazy? And yet it happens, time and time again. In our Razslam draft, DeGrom and his 611 projected points went ninth overall, just ahead of Christian Yelich, 734 points, Jose Ramirez, 768 points, Adalberto Mondesi, okay, 635, Bo Bichette, 671, and Manny Machado, 707. That was me grabbing Machado and his 707 projected points in the second round after other guys had drafted Garrett Cole, 602, Shane Bieber with 572, and Hugh Darvish, 505. That's a 200-point gain for me over the poor guy who took Darvish, and he accepted a higher injury risk as part of the bargain. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, like you didn't already know that, and as I said, there's a pretty good chance I've messed up my thinking somewhere. I have heard, for instance, that I'm going to pay the price for passing on pitching all the way through the first eight rounds, because when I do have to tackle pitching, it's going to be the dregs. But you know what? By the time I started taking pitchers again, I took three straight closers worth about 1,160 points. That's about 385 apiece on average. Another team, just two picks away from me, took three hitters, Chris Taylor, Ryan McMahon, and Mark Canha, who project to score a combined 1,245 points. I lost 85 points across those three rounds, which seems like a pretty good deal for me, since after being nearly tied through the first four rounds with that same team, he took all hitters too, I picked up 285 when he went Flaherty and Maida in five and six while I went Suarez-Goldschmidt. And one other thing, I believe the added volatility of pitchers is a benefit to just having a lot of them on the 42-player roster. Best ball scoring, remember, takes the scores of the best nine pitchers every week. And if I have 20 or so pitchers to draw from, I just need half of them to perform a little above average in any given week, while those top-ranked hitters are smashing and abashing. That's how I figure it anyway. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 2nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 12 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. 
You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. Remember, we'll be back again on Tuesday with another great Toot Out Tuesday edition featuring Steve Gardner from USA Today and Glenn Colton from SiriusXM and FantasyAlarm.com. That's Steve Gardner and Glenn Colton coming up Tuesday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. It's so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.